Good morning. It is always a privilege to share God's word with my locked body. You guys have been instrumental in my instruction here in my growth in ministry. And it is a blessing, really, to see the work of the Lord, both in my life and in your life as well, as we seek to pursue Christ-likeness in our lives. Not yet I, but through Christ in me. What a song to set up for the sermon this morning. I've entitled the sermon this morning, A Christ-like Mindset. A Christ-like Mindset, and we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Just to let you know, I'm using the English Standard Version. So if you see some different words, it's not because you're in a different place or a different passage. It's just that our versions are slightly different. Read with me Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. To be more like Christ is central to our life as believers. Actually, our whole life on this side of eternity is marked by a continual pursuit of Christ-likeness until we attain perfection upon his return. But between now and then, we continually, we're continually being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And in this letter to the Romans, in chapter 8, verse 29, the apostle tells us that God, in his foreknowledge, predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. Therefore, the primary goal, the primary goal of a Christian life is to be more like Christ. If there is a desire that should con consume every believer, it should be the desire to be more like Christ. We ought to seek to be more like Christ in our words. We ought to seek to be more like Christ in our actions. We ought to seek to be more like Christ in our thoughts and our attitudes. Because this is the whole mission of God in sending his son to die on the cross so he would redeem a people who are going to turn away from their sin and pursue Christ-likeness. And this pursuit of Christ-likeness is the overarching theme of the book of Philippians. It is primarily a practical letter where the apostle talks about pursuing Christ-likeness as the defining element of spiritual growth. So let's quickly look at the background. Where is Paul coming from before we hit the two verses that we've just read? In the earlier verses of chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, Paul appeals for unity among the believers in Philippi. Unity that builds and sustains the life of a church. He says God in Christ has given believers blessings that permit that unity in verse 1. 
Then he appeals to them to have a right mindset that promotes unity. And this is where he asks the church to be of the same mind, having the same love and being in full accord and of the same purpose. And lastly, he appeals to the Philippians to have a sober view of self and others because it undergirds unity among believers in verse 4, in verse 3 and 4. Then he moves to verse 5 to 11 to set Christ as an example of humility and the basis as a, as a model to follow in their pursuit of unity. He spends some time in that magnificent passage describing Christ's humiliation and exhortation and highlighting some of the most profound and crucial teaching on the Lord Jesus Christ in all of the Bible. Paul uses Christ's example for the Philippian church to emulate as they consider humility and unity among themselves. He does so by giving them reasons why believers should be humbled and be unified in the church. First, Paul says, because Christ's example is our model for unity. And how is that? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And secondly, Paul says, because Christ's exhortation is our motivation for unity. Because having humbled himself, God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Then he moves on to apply this example of Christ to the Philippian church. So as we go through this passage today, I want us to examine ourselves and see if we leave out this mindset of Christ. And if we're going to find ourselves lacking of which most of the times we are, Paul is going to help us by giving us three considerations in our pursuit of Christ-likeness. Three key considerations in our pursuit of Christ-likeness. And the first is this active pursuit of obedience. Active pursuit of obedience. And we see that in verse 12a. Look with me in verse 12a. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Notice the word therefore, which is linking what Paul is about to say in this passage to everything we've just quickly seen in the preceding verses. It is in the light of that magnificent passage of Christ's example that Paul is going to bring about this exhortation. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, my beloved, showing his affection for the church in Philippi. Then he continues commending them. As you have always obeyed, as you have obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul recognizes that the, Philipp the Philippian church responded faithfully to, his divine, to the divine commands he had taught them. Their pursuit of obedience was not the people-pleasing kind of obedience where you're living one kind of life when we are in the circle of believers and when you, once you've been unplugged from that, your life looks completely different. The obedience that Paul is commending the Philippian church is active and genuine. These people of God, this new covenant church obeyed in a way that is the reverse or an inversion of the old covenant Israel. Moses expressed his concern 
for the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 27, he says, I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I'm yet with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Moses knew that the rebellion, that rebellion was detrimental to these people of God. And they were not going to have a genuine relationship with the Lord if their obedience was going to be dependent on his presence. And he had seen it. In Exodus chapter 32, God calls him up Mount Sinai. He spends not so long up there, comes back down and finds them full throttle in idolatry, worshiping a golden calf. Exactly the life of, Pergen, or of pagans. So Moses was concerned for the nation of Israel. And I mean, it doesn't take long from Deuteronomy chapter 31, where he's just said this. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, Moses says, They have dealt corruptly, who? The Israelites. They have dealt corruptly with him. They're not longer children because they're blemished. They're crooked and twisted generation. Talking about the people of promise, but their disobedience really caused them to act as though they did not know the Lord. As if they didn't experience God's salvation in the Exodus. But on the contrary, Paul here commends the Philippian church for their faithful obedience. He commends them for their consistent obedience to Christ. He says the church obeyed in his presence and they continue to obey even more in his absence. Look at Paul's prayer in chapter 1 verse 3 where he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That's a perfect example of how obedient the Philippian church was. They remained faithful to their pursuit of obedience even when the apostle left. They remained faithful in their obedience even when their apostle was arrested for the sake of the same gospel. I mean, this whole letter is a product of them sending Epaphroditus to check on Paul and seeing, finding out the state of the gospel. How are you doing, Paul, in imprisonment? They were passionate about the gospel and their obedience to this word of life increased the more, even in Paul's absence. So obedience to the word of life then should be our priority if we are to become more like Christ. For the task of a Christian is to be made in all things like the son of God who took his obedience even as far as death, indeed death on the cross as we just saw in verse 8. So if the task of a believer is to be made more like Christ, then we need to emulate Christ's example. In verse 5 through 8, Paul lays out the accent of Christ's obedience. And if we're honest with ourselves, I don't think our obedience will ever require the extent Christ obeyed. We just saw that in Hebrews. Actually, as believers in the West, we're really privileged that our obedience does not require putting our life on the line. We do not have to look over our shoulders for us to practice our faith. We have that freedom of worship. Yet obedience in a culture like ours is one of the hardest things for believers to do. We get caught up in our comforts. We're religious on the outside. 
yet denying his power on the inside. Our lives are marked with disobedience. And if this is you, then you're pursuing a twisted religion. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 9, and being made perfect, he, Christ, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The mark of a believer who knows Christ is obedience to the word of God. We are called to obey faithfully to the divine commands found in scripture because Christ himself, who is the standard, obeyed perfectly. So if we're going to pursue a mindset of Christ, we need to start by being obedient like Christ, whose view of of obedience was as essential as food is to the body. In John chapter 4, verse 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his will. You see, our pursuit of Christ-likeness is found in our active pursuit of obedience, seeking to obey the way Christ obeyed. And Paul builds up his command, which we are about to see from this commendation of obedience, understanding that obedience is a prerequisite to the command he is about to issue, which brings us to our second consideration, active pursuit of holiness. Active pursuit of holiness. Look with me again in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Having commended them for their obedience, now Paul commands them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. You may read this and say, Paul, you are a pietist, but no, he's not. So what does he mean? Where... When, when he commands the Christians in Philippi to work out their salvation, when you read the letter to the Romans, you're going to hear Paul saying repeatedly that salvation is through faith and grace alone and is in no way dependent on performing deeds or rituals associated with the Jewish laws. But here he exhorts the Philippian church to work out their salvation. Is Paul teaching a different kind of gospel here? I don't think so. I grew up in a context where I grew up in a context that believes that you can, uh, you can lose your salvation. And this is one of the passages they go to and they argue that if my salvation was secure, then Paul would not tell the church in, Philipp- in Philippi to work out their salvation. But I think that is a misconception as well. Because I don't think this passage is about works-based righteousness Rather, it is about what we are calling sanctification. That is the lifelong obedience of believers, which leads us to growth in Christ-likeness. Let's look closely at the verb rendered workout. In the original text, the verb rendered workout here does not have a connotation of salvation by works. Rather, it means to continually work to bring something to fulfillment or completion. Not necessarily to bring about something that wasn't there before. We cannot earn our salvation. In fact, writing to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God 
not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul himself believed that there was no salvation apart from grace and faith, and definitely not by works. Salvation is only attained in Christ through his work on the cross and not the works of his followers. So I think the main problem is our failure to understand the Greek verb that was rendered work out here because the word has nothing to do with earning salvation the way some would interpret the passage. Rather, it is to bring the salvation that is already in us to fulfillment or fruition. So Paul here is not saying work for your salvation the way a lot of people tend to understand the, the, the verse, rather he says, work out your salvation. He's not talking about how you earn your salvation or how you maintain your salvation. Rather, he is talking about how you should act as someone who has been saved. He's talking about sanctification. God has already worked salvation for us by his sovereign grace alone. When sin found its way into the world, when Adam and Eve fell, God responded with the promise of a head crusher. And Christ came to deliver man from the bondage of sin. So Christ came and did what our works could not accomplish by obeying perfectly even unto death. And it is his death on the cross that brings us justification. And it is that death that secures our salvation as well. So when Paul commands the Philippian church to work out their own salvation, he's commanding them to pursue a life that is sanctified as people who have been justified. You see, sanctification is about living in light of this gracious gift of salvation, living in light of our new position and our new identity as children of God and fellow heirs. Do you live in light of this gracious gift in your own life? Are you actively pursuing holiness in your own life? You see, as believers, we have the responsibility to actively pursue obedience and holiness in the process of sanctification. Look in verse 12b, Paul adds that we should do so with fear and trembling. We should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What does, what does he mean by this? He's talking about the attitude with which a Christian, as Christians, we ought to have as we pursue our sanctification. It involves a healthy fear of God and reverence and a righteous awe and respect for him. It is a godly fear, as Mortar says, that grows out of recognition of weakness and of the power of temptation, a filial dread of offending a holy God. Mortar further comments, this is not the fear of the lost sinner before the holy one, but the fear of a true child before the most loving of all fathers. Not a fear of what he might do to us, but what we might do to him. You see, when you understand what it took for you to be saved, the price Christ paid for you to be justified, you're going to take your pursuit of holiness seriously and you're going to do so with reverence and a healthy fear of God. 
Sin is so serious that it took God himself to step down from the glory, from his glory for a little while. Come down in human form just so he would be nailed to the cross so that he would redeem his own creation, his own people from the bondage of sin. The eternal God become incarnate and the incarnate God became a curse in our place. So you and I would be freed from sin. He was stricken, smitten, and died a cruel death of his time, a death that was reserved for criminals. Yet he knew no sin and all that for your salvation and mine. The seriousness of these realities should cause us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling as we pursue holiness. Our view of the salvation we have in Christ should be accompanied by a healthy fear of God. And that's what's going to drive our obedience to his word. And that's what's going to drive our pursuit of holiness. Not because we are afraid of God's wrath, but because we've seen his holiness revealed in Christ and we're reminded of our unworthiness and our deserving of judgment. So our question to that, to, to Paul then, becomes how can I work out such a great salvation to bring it to fruition? How can I work out such a great salvation to bring it to fruition? A salvation that was accomplished by Christ who obeyed perfectly. And you think of your weaknesses and say, how can I work out that salvation to bring it to fruition? And Paul will say, no, it is not just you doing it. It is God doing it through you. Which brings us to our third consideration in our person of Christ-likeness. Complete dependence on God's work. Complete dependence on God's work. Let's just read both verses again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Following this heavy imperative, following this heavy command, Paul provides a comforting encouragement, reminding the Philippian church that they are not called to obey or to work out their salvation in their own power. Instead, God is the one who is working in them, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Pleasure. In other words, Paul is saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now you may say, Paul, you now sound like a quietist whose view of sanctification is all God and the believer is passive. Which is which? Is sanctification the work of the believer or the work of God? And the answer is yes. Yes. It is both the work of the believer and the work of God, but not in the sense that we usually think about it. There is no synergism or cooperation in our sanctification where God does his part and then the believer does do, do they also do their part. At the same time, the believer is not quiet or passive in the process of sanctification, the way quietness would argue. Actually, to say that the believer is Passive in sanctification quickly presents the challenging question. If my sanctification is all God and I am passive in it, when I sin, who sins? Well, I cannot be God, 
No, his failure to protect me from sinning because scripture clearly states that God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one, James 1.13. Therefore, our sinful inclinations are acts of disobedience on our part that stray away from God's working in us. In sanctification, God is working in us and the fruit of his work in us is made evident in our outward working of our salvation. The salvation that he has already secured in us. It is evident in our pursuit of holiness and in our desire to do his will. It is God's work in us that enables us to resist a life of sin. And it is his work that brings us to repentance when sin has been committed. It is all God's work. Augustine wrote, our deeds are not our, our, our own. Our deeds are our own because of the free will producing them. And they are also God's because of his grace causing our free will to produce them. Then he says, God makes us do what he pleases by making us desire what we might not desire. So you see that even our desire to obey and our desire to pursue holiness are not necessarily our own. Rather, it is God working in us to produce a desire that seeks to honor him. The work that God does in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure is expansive and complete. What will prevent us from burning out and giving up is knowing the fact that it is actually God who is at work in us. Dear Carson Knotts, God is not working merely to strengthen us in our willing and acting. Paul's language is stronger than that. God himself is working in us both to will and to act. He works in us at the level of our wills and at the level of our doing. But far from being disincentive, dis dis to press on, Paul insists that it is actually an incentive. Assured as we are that God works in this way in his people, we should be all the more strong, strongly resolved to will and to act in ways that pleases our master, end of God. And that should be our response to God's work in us. Although the believer is responsible to work it is the Lord who is actually producing the good work and the spiritual fruit in the lives of the believers through the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And this ought to be an encouragement for us to press on because God is working in us to bring our salvation to completion. God is the one who began the work in us and he is the one who will bring it to completion. John chapter 15, verse 5, Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Far apart, for apart from me, you cannot do nothing. You can do nothing. It is our abiding in Christ that allows us to produce fruit, which means in our working, we are not trying to bring about salvation, for salvation has already taken place. According to 1 John chapter 2, 19. Rather, in our working, we're showing the fruit or the evidence of the salvation that has been granted to us in Christ. 
in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul writing of Paul writing of God's working, empowering his working, he says, I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Paul recognized that. To the Corinthians, he says, but by grace I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not ineffective. However, I worked more than any of them, yet not I, but God's grace that was with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. See, at the core of our salvation is God's work that declares us justified. And in our sanctification, it is God's work in us. Underneath our work is God's work in us. The Greek word for work here in verse 13 is where we get the word energy. God is the one who is energetically or actively at work within each believer and within each church, actively transforming individuals and transforming churches corporately according to his will, according to his purpose. And what is that purpose? Look with me at the last part of verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul says, God is working in us for his good pleasure. God fulfills his good purposes in us by his mighty power. Isn't that comforting? You are not alone doing all the work, hoping that somehow maybe you're going to make it. God is at work in you, and he's accomplishing his purposes in you and through you. His good pleasure is by virtue of his love for us, our great good. We can confidently say that as believers, we are secure. Because it's not dependent on just us. It is dependent on God. The same God who initiated this work in us. Who is actively working in us to bring it to completion. We can confidently affirm the doctrine of perseverance of the saints because it is God who is working in us. Romans chapter 8, 28, 30 says this, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And that he, might, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And the time is coming when we're going to reach that perfection. Not because we've done it, but because God has done it in us and through us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, Paul says, So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That is the purpose of God's work in us. Sinclair Ferguson wrote, God's ultimate purpose is to make us like Christ. His goal is the complete restoration of the image of God in his child. 
so great a work demands all the resources which God finds throughout the universe. And he ransacks the possibilities of joys and sorrows in order to reproduce in us the character of Christ. See, God's purpose is that we should be conformed to the likeness of Christ Jesus. And Paul made this purpose the main objective of his ministry. Paul was not content with just telling people about Christ or just seeing converts. Paul, hard as, it, as, as his ultimate goal, the growth and the reaching of spiritual maturity and perfection of the believers who had come to Christ. Paul wanted the whole church to be filled with spiritually mature men and women who are attaining to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You can revisit that sermon from Pastor Rick when he was preaching on this passage. You see, salvation is not our doing. It is God's doing from beginning to end. Even our process of sanctification is all God's work in our lives, causing us to desire that which is good and for whose pleasure? For God's good pleasure. So what is our response to all this? We work and we actively pursue because God works. We work because God works. John Murray, in, in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, perfectly encapsulates the significance of working out our salvation in this way. God's working in us is not suspended because we work. No, our working suspended because God works. Neither is the relationship strictly one of cooperation as if God did his part and we did ours so that the conjunction of, or coordination of both produces the required result. God works in us and we also work. But the relationship is that God, because God works, we work. Do you live a life of obedience? Are you actively pursuing holiness in your life? Are you actively pursuing sanctification in your life? When you press home, write to your conscience the question is my life really becoming more like Christ? Does your heart respond in affirmation? Does your attitude, your disposition in your home or at work correspond to the gentle, lowly, holy, forgiving, benevolent heart of Christ? When people see you, do they see the beauty of your Savior? Do they see the glory of your Savior in your attitude and just how you carry yourself? Can they say, there is the image of Christ, a manifestation of a life that is being radically changed by God. Do they see the fruit in your life and praise your Father in heaven for the work he is accomplishing in your life? See, God's work and blessings to us for our pursuit and our working of our salvation cannot be given to those who are disobedient, those who are not actively pursuing holiness. We have to be in constant communion with the word and we must be obedient to the word for the Lord to work in our lives. 
So as I conclude, I want to leave you with just one application that will help you become more like Christ. And Pastor Rick hits this application very often. Read the Word of God. Read the Word of God. It is essential that we learn how to read, to read Scripture, meditate on the Scriptures, and to discipline ourselves to, mem to memorize Scripture. You see, obedience is the product of our active, intentional time in the Word of God, and holiness comes as a product of our active obedience to Scripture. I'm not talking about a verse a day to keep the devil away the way Tota puts it. I mean, I don't even know where that came from. Definitely not from the Bible. But I'm talking about intentional, extensive time in the Word of God. In John 18, 31, Christ told his disciples, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. You are truly my disciple. See, the word is central to our person of Christ-likeness. We cannot become more like someone we just know facts about. No. We become more like him whom we are in close communion with. So intentional time in the word is fundamental to our pursuit of Christ-likeness. Paul, in his second letter to Timothy, in chapter 2, verse 15, says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You may say, well, that verse is for pastors. No, it is for you too. We need to be intentional to learn, to study the word of God. Because our sanctification, because our walk with Christ, because our becoming like Christ is dependent on that. The psalmist in Psalm, in Psalm chapter 119 verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. That shield against sin is not just going to be your personal disciplines or your yearly resolutions. That shield against sin is going to be your time with God's word. See, the life we desire to live is found in a deeper relationship with God through his word. One that does not merely find facts or know the storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Rather, one that goes from mere head knowledge to letting it affect our hearts, transforming our minds and applying it in our daily lives. The truth of his word should be our bottom line that settles every issue in our hearts and minds. We must saturate ourselves with the word of God that our blood becomes, as Charles Spurgeon said about John Bunyan, our Bible line. Meaning the very essence of the Bible flows out of our lives, in our speech, and in everything we do. In emphasizing the need for a continual communion with God's word, Charles Spurgeon notes, all that you and I may get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it. So ought we to do with the word of God. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our innermost parts. 
It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historical facts, but it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your very, and your very style is fashioned upon scripture models and that what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the word of the Lord, end of quote. This, brothers and sisters, is how we ought to saturate our lives with the word of God, to let the word of God change us, to let the word of God bear fruit in our lives in a way that it cannot be mistaken with anything else. But people should be able to say that that person, that brother, that sister right there leaves out the word of God because everything they say, the way they carry themselves, the way they conduct themselves, you see God at work and you see the gospel manifested in their life. You may be in our midst and all oh, this sounds so foreign to you and rightly so. Because for you to live this life, you need to first of all know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You need to have a relationship with Christ. You need to surrender your life to Christ. You may say, well, how do I do that? Well, recognize the sinner you are. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God, rich in mercy, he demonstrated his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came in form of a human. The eternal God became incarnate and as, as a servant, born to a young virgin and lived a perfect life, a life of submission even unto death, indeed death on the cross. You need to understand that the wages of your sins the wages that your sins deserved were laid on Christ who suffered the penalty of our sin on the cross, died the death we deserved and rose again from the dead, imputing into our account a righteousness that we could not attain on our own, giving us eternal life so much so that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 There is no condemnation for those who put faith in his work on the cross. He reigns now in splendor and the Father has subjected everything under his rule. Romans 10.13 assures us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, the name of this risen Lord, will be saved. So if you are in our midst and you do not have a relationship with Christ, please do not leave without talking to one of our elders. James is going to be right here uh, in front of our prayer room door. Please come and talk to him. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives in conforming us more and more into the image of your son. Thank you for the salvation you have provided for us through his work on the cross and his righteousness that covers all our sin. He who obeyed perfectly, he made up for our shortcomings in our obedience. He who lived a holy life has made up for our shortcomings in our pursuit of holiness. And Lord, what an encouragement it is that even in our imperfections, you are at work in us, conforming us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. May we live our lives intentionally pursuing to become more like him in every aspect, in every dimension of our lives. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.